Hello, Gimme Shelter listeners. This is Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with Cal Matters. Liam and I have been traveling because of the Thanksgiving holiday, and I've been under the weather, as you can probably tell by the sound of my voice. So we weren't able to record a conventional episode of Gimme Shelter, uh, the ones you're used to where Liam and I make puns about accessory dwelling units and argue about wonky housing things. But instead, we're presenting a collection of interviews from big city mayors on housing and homelessness. The first is a panel that was put on a couple weeks ago by CalMatters and public radio stations across California as part of this California Dream Project we've been doing that I've mentioned a few times on the podcast. Uh, This panel features L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti, San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, and Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, all talking about how they're dealing with homelessness in their respective cities. It's moderated by my fantastic colleague, Laurel Rosenhall, who's been a guest on this podcast before. Uh, I've only included the first half of the panel in this podcast. If you want to listen to the full thing, you can find it on calmatters.org. You can also hear Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff swear in that version, if you're so interested. After that, we have an interview Liam conducted on his own with Anise Parker, the former mayor of Houston, about uh, what she has done to confront housing and homelessness issues in her city. Uh, Remember, Houston is a city with no zoning laws, which is very different than than most California cities. Uh, It's a really good interview. The sound quality ain't so hot, um, but it's good enough, so just kind of bear through it. We will be back in two weeks with a fresh episode of Gimme Shelter, I promise. Uh, But until then, enjoy these big city mayors talking about housing and homelessness in their respective cities. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, We all know that homelessness is a growing issue throughout our state and is, frankly, at a crisis level in many California cities. Um, On any given night, more than 130,000 Californians go to sleep without a home, um, and the vast majority of them are not sheltered at all. They're sleeping on our streets and doorways and riverbanks and under freeways. So we're here today to hear about what some of California's major cities are doing to provide shelter and services for their neediest residents. Um, We'll talk a bit about the impact of the recent election and look ahead to what to expect in the coming year. Um, I'll ask questions of the mayors. I encourage you to also question each other or dialogue among yourselves. And then we will get to questions from all of you. Um, You should have comment cards. We'll come around and collect those and um, take your questions toward the end of the discussion. And now I will introduce the mayors. We have, um, starting from my right, San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, and Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. So to begin with, um, I'd like to ask each of you to talk about sort of the scope of homelessness in your own in your city and um, and what you're doing to make things better. We know that though homelessness is common throughout cities, each solutions in each city look a little different. And maybe Mayor Schaff, you could start off by talking about the um, tough sheds communities and other things you're doing in Oakland. Sure. Um, Oakland, like many cities, have seen a huge increase in homelessness. Our last point in time count, which is almost two years old now, uh, showed just under 2,000 people sleeping on the streets, unsheltered, every night, uh, with another just under 400 that were homeless but sheltered. 
Uh, and we have, I, I'd say the most creative thing we've done, there, I would say there are two things that we've done that, that are creative. Uh, obviously, we know that the permanent solution to homelessness is housing, more affordable housing. And I'm sure you'll hear us all talk about um, what we think needs to change in state government to really expedite that. But in the meantime, we're mayors. Uh, even though when I came to local government years ago, I was told that homelessness was a responsibility of the county government, um, I am not seeing the county government solve the problem of what I see on my streets every night. And I want to credit um, our partnerships with philanthropy, with even the private sector, with, with local companies that have stepped in and allowed us to experiment with things in a way that government is not always designed to engage in risk taking. Uh, but as I said to my city staff who laid out all the risks involved in trying these tough shed cabin communities, uh, that the biggest risk is doing nothing at all. Can you explain it a little bit? Because people might not be familiar with what it is. Sure. The idea started uh, a couple winters ago when I was shocked to find out that every night our traditional shelter had empty beds in it. In fact, I was informed this morning that our shelter had 20 empty beds last night in the middle of an air quality crisis. 20 empty beds in my shelter last night. Trust me, I will have an answer as to why that was the case by the time I get out of here. Uh, but that, that led us to ask, why are people not choosing shelters? And so we came up with this idea, and I want to say it was inspired by something done in Yolo County. Uh, we all do talk to each other and compare notes. We um, set up these cabin communities. They have 20 small structures. They are tough sheds, but they are made out of housing, building materials. Uh, they are big enough to house two beds with a curtain between for privacy if the people are roommates as opposed to partners. They have double-paned windows, so they are very quiet when closed. And we put in insulation, and the door locks, and only the resident has that key. The cabin, the communities themselves, um, again, 40 people to a community. They also have two full-time housing navigators on site. We give two meals a day. We have a dog run. We provide dog food. Uh, and there is overnight security. And we have found um, that by locating these next to an encampment, an existing encampment, we allow that encampment to move as a community into one of these cabin communities uh, so that they can stay together uh, it also is part of our deal with the surrounding neighborhood that while uh, they will have a tough shed cabin community in their neighborhood, it will be actually resolving and upgrading the conditions of an encampment that was in their neighborhood. Uh, the invitation area for the tough shed cabin communities then becomes a no camping zone. So we do um, work very gently and thoughtfully with the community to transition them into the community. But at some point, we do say, unless you take our offer of shelter in the cabin community or at our traditional shelter, you will have to leave this area. Okay, thank you. Mayor Garcetti, do you want to talk about what's going on in Los Angeles? Sure. Um, thank you all for being here today, and thank you to my brother and sister mayors for being here. I, I'm so honored to work with this group, and we're part of a group of, which is right now called the Big 11, but of the 11 most populous city mayors in California who really do spend a lot of time talking to each other, sharing information, and advocating for a state leadership role 
instead of just a kind of collective at the local level where sometimes cities and counties do work well together. Other times cities and counties don't. Cities and neighboring cities may coordinate or may not. But it's really been, I think, an important voice and the most urgent voice that really did help work with this legislature and uh, Governor Brown to elevate to the state level this which is the greatest moral and humanitarian crisis the state faces. And in general terms, and I'll get to Los Angeles, I really do think that California's success we brag a lot about, and we should. We have peaks that are unlike any in this country. But I think it's also in our valleys that we judge our success of how well we are doing, to what extent, who are we leaving behind, what are the consequences of just so many people wanting to be in California, and will we build an infrastructure to accommodate them? Because you don't have to be homeless to be dealing with really what this is all about, which is a generalized failure of this state, a failure not just on homelessness, but a failure on child welfare, a failure on criminal justice reforms, a failure on the way that we look at domestic and sexual violence, especially for women, um, the way that we deal with trauma, and the way we deal with infrastructure. If you really want to simplify homelessness, it's about generally a group of people who are traumatized in different ways and housing being too expensive. <clears throat> In Los Angeles, we're, we're looking at both, and we actually do have a pretty remarkable partnership both between the city of Los Angeles, where we have about 25,000, maybe 23,000 people a night on the street, um, and about 31, 32,000 overall if you take the sheltered population. Um, it's the most in America. It's not the most per capita, but we're a large, large city, so it's the, it's the fifth largest per capita, so it's, it's right there at the top. And, um, and we're also a regional center, so like many of the cities, you know, Folks, oftentimes in Los Angeles, you're more likely to be home, sorry, from Los Angeles if you're homeless than if you're not. So the myth that people come from Kansas is not necessarily true, but we do have a lot of regional um, kind of collection of whether people coming out of jail, hospitals, et cetera, that uh, center in our city for the region of Los Angeles and Southern California. We're taking a kind of all the above approach. And thanks to the voters, we passed the two largest measures in US history, one for building housing, supportive housing, and one for services. This is a, a, a property tax, and this is a sales tax measure. But together for a decade, because they each last 10 years, they'll give us $4.5 billion to really ramp up outreach, mental health, housing navigators, all that kind of work, some uh, direct assistance, and then to build a housing infrastructure for those that are the the worst off or the most traumatized and need the, the deepest care. And after nine years of increases, this past year as that money started to flow, and really this will be the first honest fiscal year from July 1st of this year till next year to see how these programs work. We saw a first small downturn, which was 6%, nothing to brag about, certainly doesn't look any better on the streets, but it gave us a lot of confidence because there's two measures in a city. When we judge our success in LA, and there's a whole bunch of programs that maybe I'll just feather into our later comments, but you look at how many people in that point in time count there are, but you also have to look at how many solutions a year you're coming up with, because that really shows the progress of, is the machine to house people and to solve homelessness getting better? In Los Angeles, when I started, it was about 8,800 people a year, the first year after we dug into this, which was a new peak. Every year it's gone up, and this past year we housed 16,500 people in some sort of permanent housing solutions. We probably, that means, have a supply of close to that, right? Maybe 15,000 new people a year. So one of the things increasingly that I hope we can also bring into this conversation is what are we doing on prevention? Because it really, the longer I spend on this issue, Absolutely. the more this is everything. Um, we will be building 10,000 units of, of, of supportive housing from the bond and other uh, things that we will leverage. We've passed a linkage fee to build more affordable housing, which should give us about $100 million a year. We want redevelopment uh, back, or however we want to talk about tax increment financing. 
uh, from the state. We all lobbied for the HEAP dollars, which is the state money that's come in. We're putting 45 million of that uh, to work in what Libby was talking about. We've, we had a lot of permanent supportive housing coming, but that takes uh, two to three years to build. More outreach and street services, but it's that encampment problem on the street right now that there was not enough bridge housing. And the old debates of like, you can either be for shelter or for housing, we, we kind of are saying it's a false dichotomy. We are for both and you need both. And this, the tweezer-based approach of taking people who are the most vulnerable and putting them into the permanent supportive housing, which is necessary because they're closest to death, doesn't solve the encampment problem because you'll take two people out of a 20-person encampment, 18 people stay, and two more replace them uh, in that coming month. Can I use that, the tweezer? Yeah, sure, tweezer. please, absolutely. I mean, that's what it is. It kind of, in a good way, takes out the, you know, the, the worst uh, off folks, but it doesn't solve neighborhood. And this is really, I think, something that is a neighborhood-based issue that all four of us confront because the complaints you get from the most humanitarian people who want to solve homelessness and do whatever they can to the people who are just like, get rid of these folks, and I had a bad experience with somebody committing some sort of crime who was also experiencing homelessness, and they conflate the two. Um, no matter where they come from, everybody wants a neighborhood-based solution. And most of our homelessness policy is very 50,000 feet or just on the ground, here's a meal. And we need something in between to stabilize trauma and then get people to being case managed, worked towards some solution off the streets while we wrap around in Los Angeles this prevention picture, which to me, the more I think about it, you know, this is oftentimes just about rent. We could give people 200 bucks or 300 bucks more a month, and we wouldn't be paying 50, 60, 100,000, $500,000 for a new unit a few years later. Thank you. Mayor Faulkner? Uh, good morning. Thank you for ha having me as well. Um, it is the issue that we are dealing with in all of our cities. Uh, that is the unfortunate reality and, and a truism. But, but one, I think, when I look at um, and the work that we have been doing, and there is a lot of collaboration for all of the right reasons, this is not a partisan issue. This is a right thing that we should be doing issue. And I think one of the things that you've heard from some of my colleagues and, and certainly from myself is the old way of doing things aren't working. Uh, and so if we look at what we're, what we're seeing and trying to treat people with dignity and respect, but to get results, we have to do things differently than we were doing as cities 10, 15, and, and 20 years ago. Um, it is an all of the above approach. I'm not, we have discussions, probably all of us, and, and you know, should we do this, should we do this? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Is it housing? Absolutely. Is it services? Absolutely. Is it prevention? Yes. But it's also, and I think, and you'll, you'll hear this from some of, from all of us, my colleagues today, because we believe in it, and I've really tried to set that tone in San Diego, it's about action. It's about not waiting, not letting perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, and to take that leadership role in sometimes very difficult decisions that we have to make as mayors and to try to work with our, our, our council members, our neighborhood groups and others, which is people need help. Um, and we need to give them that help now. Just a couple of examples of what we've been doing in San Diego on, on our bridge shelters. We got 700 people off the street that we just uh, started uh, just a little over a year ago. Um, the right thing to do. And you'll get a lot of folks who will say, you know, I support the bridge shelters. I think that's a great idea. It's working. But I just don't want one here. Right? And so one of the things that we all deal with in terms of nimbyism, in terms of folks that want to want to help people, is to say, this is not something to be feared. This is something that is going to have the desired results that, that I think all of us, us want to see. 
And so when we look at what we've been trying to do on, on the bridge shelters, what we've been doing in terms of safe parking programs, what we've been doing in terms of, of a storage center for folks on the street to have a safe place to secure and store their belongings. Again, so if you're going to a job interview later in the day or others, um, and again, all of these things are not necessarily um, inexpensive, but as, as we're trying to set the, both the tone and the, the desire of, of achieving real positive change, um, it, it is that all above the approach. Um, and you know, the work that we, all of us, you know, earlier this year, and we'll talk about a little bit more, I'm sure, on the HEAP funding in terms of, of working with the state, um, the issue of homelessness is absolutely intertwined with our housing supply. We need to build more housing. We need to build more housing. Um, and that is something that sometimes elected officials were reluctant to say, even a few years ago. And so we've been trying to set the tone. One of the things I've been doing, and we're updating all of our community plans uh, in San Diego with master environmental impact reports, not wanting to get too much in the wonky weeds here, but I think this crowd will understand it. So you can go and, and build that housing by right, so you don't have to go through endless cycles. Uh, that is incredibly important. Um, Eric just talked about uh, redevelopment and tax increment. Bringing that back, ladies and gentlemen, is an absolute essential thing that we need to do it in California. What was our number one source for affordable housing in cities? Mm -hmm. Those redevelopment funds, those tax increment funds. We have to bring that back. And one more that I will throw out, um, because I think it's, it's also incredibly important, if we're talking big picture, uh, is the issue of sequel reform. We have to be able to make sure that we have uh, the ability to move forward uh, with building housing did not constantly get uh, embroiled sometimes with lawsuits that make no sense. And so some of those big picture items, I think as we continue to work together to make some of those changes, not only at the statewide level, but at the local level, um, and to demonstrate by example and political will when it's not always easy to do, but all of us share the same goal. We need to help people get off the street. We need to help them get off the street now, whether that's into a bridge shelter, but also with one goal, which is to get them into permanent supportive housing so they can stay off the street for good. Thank you. And Mayor Steinberg, if you could talk about the scope of, of homelessness in Sacramento, what you're doing, and save your um, desires for policy changes at the state level till later in the conversation, Still, please. You, <laughs> you knew exactly where I was gonna start too, Laurel. You know me as I... <laughs> Traverse both the state and local uh, government landscape Which here. do you like better? Which do I like better? Uh, a complete tie. I love the <laughs> The, so I listen to Mayor Faulkner and it, you know, it reminds me of course that uh, local government is where partisanship really does not exist because maybe from different political parties, but I listen to him and I say, I agree with virtually everything he just said about about what it is going to take. In Sacramento, um, we are employing uh, the whatever it takes approach. And the comment that I think it was Mayor Schaff made, or maybe uh, Mayor Garcetti, about the city and county relationships are really relevant here, um, if not spoken about as often. The county is the health and human services entity for local government. The cities are where the greatest degree of the problem exists. And so when I became mayor and saw that we had what I would call kind of a ribbon cutting philosophy in Sacramento, we celebrate the pilots, we celebrate the great nonprofits that are doing the work, but we did not have a real strategy nor an articulated goal around how many people we actually wanted to get off the streets. 
I came in and I said with my colleagues, Vice Mayor Hansen and others, that whether we like it or not, uh, we must get in the business with our county to make alleviating homelessness a top tier priority. And so we applied, because our county did not, for the federal whole person care grant, the federal Medicaid waiver that's given us with the private, our private partner $64 million to actually practice one of the four key elements of making this problem better, and that is assertive outreach out on our streets. You're not gonna get people who have been uh, on the streets for a decade or more with severe mental illness or substance abuse off the street merely by offering them a voucher or a place in the shelter. Treatment resistance is real, but it's also overstated and overrated because with the practice of assertive, consistent outreach, remember Steve Lopez and the soloist and his relationship with Nathaniel Ayers, it works. You can get people into care and treatment if you're assertive and you build that trust between the clinically trained outreach worker and the person on the streets. So we now have that ability in Sacramento. And since May 1st, we've uh, engaged over 700 people on the streets of Sacramento who have enrolled now in whole person care. Secondly, and this is what we fought for at the state level this year under the umbrella of the, the so-called Big 11. And under your leadership. Well, thank you, Larry. Our, our chair. Yes. Our president. Well, I appreciate it. I just happen to be the guy that uh, is closest to the Capitol. <laughs> that, that, that helps, you know. It does help. In many ways. In many ways, yes. Um, and I, I, still, uh, I still know uh, my way a little bit around there. But anyways, it's triage. You cannot get most people from the streets or the riverbanks into permanent housing without a bridge because they're not ready and they're gonna fail. Housing first, by the way, is not housing only. It's housing combined with services. So all of us in different ways. I love Libby's tough shed approach. I've been to San Diego to look at the, the sprung shelters. In Sacramento, we have uh, rented a, a, a soon-to-be cannabis warehouse facility uh, to house 200 people in our first low-barrier triage center in which just uh, as the other cities are doing here, pets, possessions, and partners. We take people where they're at. And as a result, we've brought in over 400 people uh, in a 200-bed facility. And of course, a number of them have left for either transitional or permanent housing. This is essential. And we need to multiply what we're doing in one part of Sacramento, North Sacramento, five to six to eight times. Third is mental health and substance abuse resources. This is where the partnership with the county is so key because they are the recipients of the Mental Health Services Act, uh, the Prop 63 dollars, you know, the act that I was involved in back in 2004. Um, we need this active partnership with the counties because they provide those resources. Fourth is permanent housing. You know which proposition had more votes on the California ballot two weeks ago than any other proposition? It was Proposition 2. Sure. It was the No Place Like Home initiative mm -hmm. that takes part of the Prop 63 dollars, securitizes it, and creates a $2 billion housing bond. And here's going to be the call to action for the new governor and for the state administration and for all of us. How do we get that money out the door mm -hmm. quickly without years of backlog? 
And finally, I want to emphasize this uh, issue, which I know we can, we'll talk more about, about prevention and early intervention. Because here's what I can say, and it's, it's, I'm not happy to say this, but this is the truth. I'm actually confident that in my city and throughout the state that we are going to get thousands of people off the streets. I really am. I think with the, with the strategies we are all employing in different ways, we will do this. But I'm less confident about whether or not we have the commitment and the will to prevent the next cohort of tens of thousands of people from becoming homelessness, homeless. So we may feel good in our hearts, and rightfully so, that we will have helped thousands of people, tens of thousands of people through these efforts. But the real challenge, the additional challenge is, will the people in our communities feel any different as they walk downtown for lunch or go to the park or, or try to live their lives. That's the real challenge here. And so the paradigm shift as we get to policy needs to be how we have a statewide housing strategy and an emergency assistance approach for people who are on that edge, that proverbial edge, who are one broken down car, one lost job, one rent increase, away from no longer being able to afford their tenancy. We can do this, but it's going to take um, unprecedented level of, uh, of effort. Finally, I say this. I hope we get to the whole issue of regulatory reform and siting specifically. These horrible wildfires, horrible, horrible, horrible wildfires. Is there any question that we are going to put up every bit of emergency shelter necessary to house the dispossessed people of Butte County. No. Do you know how long it takes uh, to not only get money out the door for homelessness, but to actually site facilities, especially when a neighbor can sue and hold it up? how long it takes our public works departments to fit all the infrastructure and do all this business. Treat this like a crisis in this state, the crisis that it is, and the policies to make sure that we actually build what is needed to volume into scale will then follow. Thank you. That was a great sort of opening remarks to give us all a good sense of the landscape across the state. Um, I want to touch on something a couple of you brought up, which was the tax increase you did in Los Angeles for homeless services, the Prop 2 money that you just mentioned, which is specifically housing for homeless folks who are mentally ill. Um, I know in Oakland, your voters approved a tax increase this month for homeless services. I believe in San Diego, you're um, considering one for next year. Um, in addition, statewide, the voters approved the Prop 1 housing bond to build affordable housing. So very quickly, I'd like to go down the line and ask each of you, when can we expect to see this money make a difference? When, when and please be specific with a year or a number of years, when will the homeless population in your cities decrease? Do I start? <laughs> yep. Okay, well, I, I, I pledged and you know, if, if my political consultant said, well, well what did you say? Um, that we have to get 2,000 people off the streets over the next three years, and that was a year ago, so. 2020? 2020, 2,000 people well, a off the streets. Noticeable decrease? Yes. Okay. 
Mayor Schaff. Um, well, first of all, the, the tax that just passed, we're not going to actually see that money for a long time. It's a very uncertain tax. It's on vacant property, so it's, it's very unknown. I'm not holding my breath over that one, frankly. Um, I can tell you that based on you know, the HEAP funding, cobbling things together, we will, within one year, add uh, either safe parking spaces or new shelter beds, whether they're in a tough shed cabin community, a traditional shelter, or one of our rapid rehousing centers. We've added capacity in all those areas. We will add about 900 more beds. That, that's basically tripling the supply of emergency beds that we had a year ago. But I'm going to um, be rude and just answer a question you didn't ask me. <laughs> How unlike a politician to do that. Um, you all have touched on prevention. And I just want to highlight, we are doing this in Oakland. And it is fabulously successful and cost effective. And I just want to point out, there is no dedicated governmental funding source to prevent homelessness. It is ridiculous. We had to spend two years scraping around and begging philanthropy, which, which we were successful at doing. And we finally announced about a month ago, keep Oakland housed. And this is a three-pronged approach where we provide emergency financial assistance. Now, that may be back rent, but it depends on that household's unique situation about what has caused their um, risk of losing their house. We provide free legal assistance, and we provide case management to assess the ongoing ability for that household to stay housed. In our first 10 days, we kept 60 families, 60 families in 10 days from becoming homeless. One of my favorite stories was Deborah Ross. The total cost to keep her housed was $800. Yep. That is all she needed to keep her housing for herself and her grandson. That is the most cost-effective investment that yeah, we can yes, make. Yes. It is shameful that we do not have dedicated public funding for this. And so in- Let's change that. Uh, oh, Daryl, I have no doubt we will. <laughs> That's Amen. the boot. Now you were forming the, see, we're forming the big 11 agenda here yes, on exactly. stage. <laughs> well, and, and again, thank you, philanthropy, for giving me $9 million to do this and to document and evaluate and demonstrate just how cost effective this is so that this then can become a popular agenda that we can sell to the legislature. Mayor Garcetti, your voters approved this new money a couple years ago, so you've had some time. So uh, you know, how soon do you think that, that there will be a noticeable decrease in homelessness? It's a great question, and respectfully, it's the wrong question. I'll tell you why. It, because we don't know what the supply in will be. If you're going to be responsible and answer that, I've come now after working on this issue since I was 14 years old and as a mayor for the last five and a half years, you cannot responsibly answer whether what the net will be if you don't know the supply. I can do what Daryl talked about. I can tell you how many people we will house. I think we'll go from, we used to be 8,800 a year. This past year, 16,500. My gut is that it'll probably be over 20,000 this year, people who are actually housed out of homelessness. But if we don't know what happens with the economy, if we don't know what the criminal justice reforms without a true safety net are going to be, and we have huge supplies of people coming out of prisons and jails, if we don't know what work is being done in child war welfare, if we don't know if the, we're finally winding down a war in Afghanistan and how many vets are going to be coming home, if we don't know what infrastructure is out there for d domestic and sexual violence, I can't give you a net number. Okay. So until we approach it that way, I think, and, and that is the beautiful thing about homelessness. Homelessness is not an issue. It is a prism that refracts everything. 
in our cities, in our societies. And if we're truly interested in ending a condition on our streets because it's either inconvenient, appalling, or morally we don't like it, um, it requires us to dig deep into multiple policy areas at the same time, which is what's so exciting to me is that we can do those together. Mayor Faulkner. You know, one, one of the things, that we, just to take off on <clears throat> working particularly with the private sector, um, I had a goal of getting 1,000 veterans off the street in a year or less. Uh, it took us 16 months to do that. But one of the things that we did was we interacted with our, <clears throat> our landlord community. And I said, I need your help. I need your help for men and women that have served our country, um, that we're trying to get into, into housing. Uh, and there was a stigma, right, about providing housing to folks that are homeless. Um, and, and so I said, one of the things that we wanted to do is to be smart about how the resources that we had. And so guaranteeing first months, last months, extra security deposit to try to help alleviate some of those concerns because we needed people to actually have a place to go. Um, and the success of that program, as I think in part of the model that we're going to try to do with our entire homeless population, with our landlord community to say, here, look, there's some financial guarantees, if you will, right? Because a lot of folks are bottom line oriented that, that own, own apartments, but also not to fear. The, you know, fear is a powerful human emotion. And if we can take away some of that fear by demonstrating how something can actually work, and the number of individuals in that program, in our Housing Our Heroes program, that, that had problems with some of the units was four, four out of 1,000. And so it's, it's again, it's, it's trying the all of the above approach. It's trying to take, in this case, which was literally some, some extra help and, and gap dollars that could really get people uh, into a unit. Um, and so as we're moving forward with some of the dollars that we, with our heap dollars and others, there is gonna be a measure on a future San Diego ballot citizens initiative that just qualified for not only expanding our convention center, but, but you know, approximately $500 million for homelessness. Let's be smart and targeted with those dollars and put it to use now so we can get people off the street now um, and, and again into a, a, a cycle that's a positive cycle um, where you're showing that you know, sometimes just the, that small amount of dollars can make the difference between able to afford a, an apartment or not. So when, when do you think that the people in your community will see a difference? Uh, well, they're ho hopefully they're seeing it a difference now. Um, but I think to, to, to what you've heard from all of the mayors, um, as, we, as we tackle this, um, it's, it's not only helping, helping folks that are on the street, but, but trying desperately to say, preventing not just you know, additional uh, folks from falling into homelessness. Um, and so how do you do that? You, you do that by not only some of the temporary emergency issues that we're dealing with, but, but again, back to some of the help, the permanent solutions to make housing in general more affordable uh, for everybody in our city and more opportunities to be able to move into that housing. Um, if, if we don't do that, if we don't do that in any of our cities, we won't be successful. Okay. So getting in on that just for two seconds. Sure. I, I think that's the right frame, actually. It's that um, if we want to see a visual difference, um, it isn't about whether or not there's a lot of work and activity. We are going to have to scale this up to something that is double or triple the size of even all of our quality of efforts. Okay. If, it, it's, if you're looking at the visual difference of the net coming down, because we've never housed people, I think, as quickly, as aggressively, as comprehensively, as much services, and still it's not enough. I mean, on, on veterans, I took the pledge. And the reason why I want to dig in, I said it was a good question, but the wrong one, I've learned that lesson personally as a politician. So at the beginning, Michelle Obama was going around the country asking mayors to end veterans' homelessness. I took that pledge, and many of us probably did. 
LA by far had the most, I think it was 6,500 vets who were homeless on our streets. Um, and then headlines a couple years later was that LA had failed. Now let me describe what the failure was. We housed 9,000 homeless vets, the most in the country. We put all hands on, we had the VA, we had local government, county, city all together. It was extraordinary, I stood up a new office of Veterans Affairs. We had by pure numbers the greatest success in the country, but we have 2,000 left. So in other words, from that 6,500, there was a new 5,000 who have become homeless. And people said, you have failed. I don't mind that because we run for office, we're used to criticism. But what it did is it took the air out of the balloon of people thinking we can make a difference here. And so I think it's really important for our reporting on this because I don't always get that nuance. It's not a complaint. But I told a main homelessness reporter in Los Angeles said, you have to tell some good news stories or people will say, this is unsolvable, sweep them out, or whatever it is, or we'll give up on this. When there actually is a lot of momentum of real people, real stories, real successes, mm -hmm. at the same time we have to say, and let's double it. Not say you guys failed, because I guarantee you the next crop of mayors, if the, if the stamp is mm -hmm. failure on everybody, will say, I'm not touching homelessness. Okay. So getting the money is, is one hurdle and, and spending it is another. Um, as we've seen in Los Angeles, um, where your voters did pass this mm -hmm. tax increase, now you're having a really hard time um, getting people to agree to have shelters put in their neighborhoods. And I know there's been some pretty raucous public meetings. You've been booed. You're getting a lot of pushback. And um, Mayor Steinberg, this is an issue you're going to be facing really soon. You've said you're going to announce new shelter locations next month for Sacramento. So I was wondering, Mayor Garcetti, mm -hmm. do you have any advice for Mayor Steinberg? On sure. Daryl, Daryl, Daryl. So where do I start? No, you know, again, I think it's overreported because it's so much easier to report the opposition than the ones that have no opposition. Like, that's never an article. Um, and I would say that we've done polling on this. 60 to 70% of people consistently say yes to supportive housing in their neighborhood, right by them, and now the bridge housing shelters. So can you get a community meeting? Like, we had one in Venice, California. We had about 400 people in support of, of doing something at a bus yard. They didn't get there as early as the 300 people who were opposed to it and who were kind of indoors. And it was the most raucous public meeting of my life. Four and a half hours of like, as a count, my council member, Mike Bonin, was describing who some of these people were. Somebody actually yelled, don't humanize this. Uh, we had the chief of police there with a badge and a gun who got a little bit more respect because of those two things. But people just interrupting, yelling. It's kind of the death of civil discourse in America embodied at its highest. But it was a great meeting, too. A lot of people said afterwards, that sounds like it. do you regret it? <laughs> and I, I stayed Wish there I for four there. and a half hours until, because after two and a half hours, we stopped, and the cameras, the news cameras went away. People were a little bit more civil, interestingly, when those were gone. And they said, you're leaving. I said, nope, I'm not going to leave until every single one of you who wants to talk to me can talk to me. And me and the council member stood for another two hours, I'd say, or an hour and a half, until we looked around and nobody was left in the room. We outlasted every person in the room. We can't get 100% agreement on anything, but it was really necessary to hear that. Um, so I would do some of that, but I also tell elected officials, don't process these things to death, because when they open, can't wait. to your point, it becomes a person. Oh, I thought it was going to be bad having vets in my apartment, and you know, four out of 1,000 is probably a better rate than right. folks who aren't homeless being tenants <laughs> in general, if you're a landlord. So um, do the minimum, and I don't mean that in a superficial way, but yes, listen to people, but do something, actually build it, open it up, and then I think it changes the conversation. And for us, we have about 40 sites we're looking at simultaneously. Most don't have anywhere near that level of opposition. We had protests about one, and we moved it three blocks away, and everybody said, great, we want it there. So it wasn't that the neighborhood didn't want it. And the last piece is listen to people's fears. Opponents 
Some are against homeless individuals, people who are experiencing homelessness. But most are usually experiencing something else, either about public safety or cleanliness. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong because they're yelling and conflating that with homelessness. So at that meeting in Venice, for instance, it was clear we needed some more police resources for whether it was somebody who was homeless or not committing criminal acts. And everybody feels a little bit more satisfied that they were listened to by government. And it isn't just about whether they oppose or favor a shelter. And I'll add, we've had an interesting experience by using this geographic approach. Yeah. So with the Tough Shed Cabin communities, they're small. But the deal is you get one in your neighborhood, but it serves the homeless that were already in that neighborhood. Yep. So, so again, the neighbors have actually become huge fans, and we bring them to the next neighborhood to actually give testimony of just how much it improved their quality of life. And then um, the other thing about our Tough Shed Cabin communities is, is we are actually about to decommission the first one because we only were able to get an 18-month lease on that piece of property. So we often find pieces of property that are about to be developed, and we have permission to be there. I mean, we, our minimum length of stay is 18 months, but the idea that this actually might go away someday has also been a selling point now. We're, we're replacing it fourfold somewhere else, but that, that has also helped the conversation. But at the, at the end of the day, and, I mean, we all know this, we signed up to be unpopular right? <laughs> in, in a weird way, right? And so I, I always say like to the council member, you know, just say like it's the mayor's fault. I'm, exactly. I'm the one yeah. who's making it happen. You like hear them and you, you've tried your best to advocate for them and it's the damn mayor. So we're gonna, yes, I, gr I agree with that. I mean, I think, Couple elements. Can I say that in LA about no, the open no. mayor? Or <laughs> Please. I just always say it's Cheryl's fault. <laughs> say it's, it's my fault. It is. It, it's a combination of all the above. You have to do what Mayor Garcetti described uh, in Venice, right? You have to. You have to engage with the people in the community, and you have to listen, and you have to listen endlessly. But you also can't take no for an answer. Right. when you know you've got an obligation here. And that's where the will um, of a mayor and the willingness to be a little bit unpopular. I say as we begin developing our fair share policy in Sacramento, that it's okay if everyone's a little bit mad, uh, as opposed to mm -hmm. one community being mm -hmm. horribly mad because mm -hmm. it's, all, it, it's all there. And, and what we found in North Sacramento with our Railroad Avenue shelter is that the fury died down as soon as they saw that what came with the shelter, by the way, were additional resources for neighborhood cleanup, for law enforcement, and a lot of the surrounding area actually got better as a result. Yep. So proving concept, of course, is, is crucial. But in the end, it, it, does, it does take a large amount of will and political will to say that no matter how much one fears the placement of a, a homeless triage center, for example, it is better than the status quo because the status quo is unacceptable. And by the way, homelessness is no longer just a downtown issue right. anymore. It, it spreads yep. throughout our entire community and everyone's affected. You know, you're credited with making a lot of big strides to reduce 
uh, homeless, the homeless population here in Houston during your time in office, and obviously now California faces a pretty unprecedented uh, homeless crisis. And I'm wondering what lessons do you think the state can learn from, from how you handled uh, what was going on in, in Houston at the time? In a four-year period, we were able to drop overall homelessness by nearly 60%, and we virtually eliminated uh, uh, veterans' homelessness. And I'm very proud of that, but uh, I will say that everybody wants one solution, and there's not one thing that you can do that works. Obviously, the solution to homelessness is appropriate housing. Uh, and for most of the homeless, it's uh, housing with permanent wraparound social services. But that's easy said and, and hard to do. But we discovered that it took a lot more than just housing. It, it took a coordinated and, and consolidated effort with, from a lot of different entities and a lot of different agencies. And that's one of the other problems I see everywhere is that there are a lot of organizations in this space doing working really, really hard, but they all work in parallel. They don't converge on the problem. So the one real value add that I gave to our initiative in Houston is that I put my political capital behind it and was willing to push people into places they didn't want to go to make things uh, happen. And when I say people, often I mean the, the agencies that were working in this uh, space. I announced when I was my second inauguration as mayor that homelessness was going to be a, a priority issue. <clears throat> and in a strong mayor system, I was able sure. to put the appropriate level of city resources behind the effort. But what we were able to accomplish on homelessness, we did uh, largely without new sources of revenue and without new uh, players in the space. It was about rethinking what we were doing. Mm -hmm. so can, can but, I, but I want to say yeah. largely without, without new, uh, new resources because we took advantage of a unique opportunity. The Obama administration announced that they wanted to really focus on veterans' homelessness, and they asked cities to compete in, in finding ways to, to reduce veterans' homelessness. And they actually made some special VASH, uh, uh, Veterans Housing Assistance Dollars, VASH dollars, available. And uh, the goal was, could you house 100 homeless veterans in 100 days? I think only three cities actually mm -hmm. did it, but we were one of the cities that did it, and it, it proved a catalyst for all the other things we did because I had some new money, so I wasn't taking anything away from anybody who was there uh, already in that space. Uh, that it was about veterans, so we could appeal to uh, you know people's patriotism, mm -hmm. and it was a it was seen as a defined short-term goal. 100 veterans, 100 days. So everybody came to the table and they anted up what they had to be part of this joint effort. And we housed 101 veterans in 100 days. And then I said, well, let's do it again. So we did it again, and we did it again, and we did it a, third, a fourth time. And uh, then we had a new pattern. Uh, and we had new relationships within these various agencies 
and I and my team had a better idea of who did what and, and who could be, uh, uh, where, we could, where, the, where we could improve and, and where we could go in new directions. Uh, so that was one thing that, you know, the stars aligned. Another thing that happened about the same time was that the leadership of the city housing authority, the county housing authority, the uh, public housing uh, administration, uh, and, and uh, the leadership of what we call the Coalition for the Homeless, which is all the service agencies mm -hmm. that come together, all changed in a matter of a few months. Mm. So you had a whole bunch of new people that weren't wedded to the old ways of doing things. So, if so, said, so was that planned or was that? No, it oh, was okay. serendipitous. Yeah. But it meant that if I wanted something to change, they weren't, it wasn't an attack on them because they weren't wedded to the old sure. processes. Yeah. So that was the second huge benefit that I had. Uh, the most important thing in, is far as me being a, a public official uh, that I did was I hired a special advisor on homelessness issues and got out of her way. Uh, <laughs> her name was Mandy Chapman Simple, so I had yeah. one person to, to do all the coordination, but so her responsibility was when, when I said to go do something or when I asked a question, she had the answers, but, but she was largely self-directed, but when you have uh, a dozen city departments who are somehow working on this issue and they all want to do their own little little piece, who knits it together, who has the big picture. And she did that for within the city, but she also did that for this uh, these outside agencies. Mm. The really hard part came, you know, taking this, you know, the new paradigm, the new working relationships we had we, we gathered to, on working on veterans was um, how do we then broaden this to the larger uh, right. population. Right. So the next step we had to do was figure out who they were. And I see this over and over again. People talk about the homeless. It's not the homeless. It's like they're not widgets. <laughs> it's John and James and sure. Fred yeah. and, and we did a we called a registry week and we put volunteers out and we did I think 847 interviews of unique interviews with individual uh, homeless men and women and we got lots of data that we we didn't have before I mean some some things we we knew but but we were able to quantify it about half had substance abuse problems about half had uh, mental health problems. We we knew how many were. We found out how many were veterans. About fifteen percent were women. About thirty percent worked periodically, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was uh, a surprise to us. And we found out a lot of them had assets as well. We think of the homeless as like, having nothing, but maybe they have maybe they have vet veterans benefits. Maybe they have social security or uh, maybe a pension, but they don't have a fixed address, so mm -hmm. they can't access mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those benefits. And we also found out how many were using the emergency rooms as uh, sure. for primary like the, care. The frequent flyer issue. The frequent flyer yeah. mm -hmm. issue. And uh, so we took all of this data, 
and we also at the same time looked at how much we were we were spending on uh, these homeless populations and it was over a hundred million dollars annually annually wow mostly in an emergency room visit right but when right. you think about the shelters and all the nonprofits and uh, police uh, right. involvement right. EMS picked up somebody passed out on the street on and on more than a hundred million dollars a hundred million dollars you think you could deal with a population of less than 10,000 right but you have to figure out a different way to to do it so then the next thing that we looked at was the really the interrelationship with all these agencies and we found out how fragmented the the system was we had all these amazing organizations some providing meals some providing health care some providing access to jobs some working on housing and they didn't share their data uh, so that really became clear very early on that we would have to choose a single uh, coordinated data system and everybody had to get on it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they all had their own and they'd made investments i don't care right <laughs> you have to figure out a way that we, we all have to feed this data in and so instead of having a one person might go into a dozen different agencies for various things during the course of the week and uh, they, they, there's no handoff between the agencies and there's uh, no integration of the information about what that per individual person is, is using. And then if miraculously we find a housing placement, you can't find them again. Mm. Mm -hmm. So a uh, shared data system was a uh, critical piece. So then uh, we Previously, we had the Coalition for the, for the Homeless, which is all the homeless providers. We, we created what we call the uh, Continuum of Care, which was those folks, the funders, the hospitals, the government agencies, sort of we broadened the, right. the coalition, or, the umbrella, yeah, yeah. bringing more people into the conversation. And if, if the the single most important thing I'm going to repeat what I just said is yeah. that having them share data and, and all talk to each other so yeah. we could track a person through through the system and see what they were accessing we could find that that person again but once we were all broader group in the room larger buy-in then it was well how are we utilizing the resources that we already have we know how much we're spending on emergency room care I can't deal with that yet right what about we we know we need housing, so how many beds do we have, and how are they being utilized? And I was shocked. We found out we had dozens and dozens of beds every night that were empty, mm. and some of them were empty for weeks at a time. Yeah. It's like, I, okay, I have 10,000 people in temporary shelters or on the streets, and you have, you have an apartment or you have a permanent sure. bed that... Sure. And this is this is where it got kind of ugly, and that is that these agencies want to serve certain populations. They're created to serve certain populations. Mm. They're funded to serve certain populations. But what we discovered is that what they wanted to do wasn't necessarily what we needed. Mm. And so, can you give me an example, like an agency set up to to serve? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, uh, single women or or just veterans and and. 
then maybe one of and, them and, had and been agencies, open And agencies yeah. that, that serve just, just yeah. veterans, yeah. Uh, there are special requirements around right. that, and they often you know, go for particular federal dollars sure, on that. Okay. But I'm thinking yeah. of something like, uh, an example is an, an organization that, that only serves women. Well, only 15% of our population was women, but they want women uh, without substance abuse issues, right. or they want women with substance abuse right. issues, right. or... Uh, with children or without and children. And, right. and, 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 and not to say that, that they weren't doing good work or that they shouldn't continue to do work, but if those aren't the beds we need, we had to figure out how to move the resources into the areas where we, we had the most needs. Hmm. And we had an absolutely critical problem with... Uh, there, there were no, there were no detox beds. There were like a dozen detox beds for the, a, a huge city. So we've absolutely, you know, that's a short-term placement, but we we absolutely needed to put more money in, in right. to there. So, you know, short-term step was trying to figure out how we could put heads in beds and and uh, fill those fill those empty beds and make sure that we began to align the resources with, with, our, with our problem. And we also, because we'd gone through this effort with the, the veterans and, and had some track record at this point, we knew the agencies, we were funding the agencies essentially you know, equivalent based on a per, per capita basis, but some of them were much more efficient and mm -hmm. effective mm -hmm. with their dollars. But others had been in the pipeline for a long time. Again, there were established agencies with, with boards that, of, of uh, high-profile Houstonians sure. who really supported the effort. And we broke some eggs in there. We just said, we, we have to, hey, I'll give you more money over here because you seem to be good at this, but you're not as good as this other agency over there at that. Let's me build up this yeah. agency that does that better. Yeah. And and we started moving things around. And that's when everybody gets their back up. So so it sounds like what you're saying, the role of a mayor or governor in this sort of situation is to be uh, coordinate everyone and put everybody in a room together and then sort of be the decider, right? In terms yes. Of, yeah. So the most powerful thing that a mayor or, or a, a governor can do, we, yeah. you know, as a chief executive, right is convene uh -huh. uh, and persuade uh -huh. and use the power of the office. The next most common thing or most powerful thing you can do is if you have direct authority over uh, resources within your agency. And I, I was in the strongest strong mayor position in the United States. So all the city departments work for me. Uh -huh. And so if I wanted them to allocate certain resources or certain personnel to do something, I could make that happen. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what had to happen was the private sector, nonprofit agencies coming along. And so there's a third thing that a public official can do, and that is have the conversations, persuade, communicate, build the public case for why something needs to happen. You can. You can bludgeon people into doing what you want to do, or you can uh, convince. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of both, <laughs> but the convincing has to be done because it's not just about the, the communication to the agencies that are in the space, but also it's to the, the broader community. Sure. Because 
uh, there are a lot of myths about homelessness, and you know, the head of a the head of a, an agency that deals with street people can talk about it all day long, and people who don't want to hear it won't hear it. Sure. But it is the job of a public official to to bring truth to their citizens, and you know, there's a there's a there's one that's been popping up over and over, and I've talked to a lot of public officials about this, and it is that well, if we ramp up our services for the homeless, then we'll get more homeless. That if you build it, they will come. Right. Which is, the homeless move for the same reasons that other people move. They, they might have, they hear word of a job, or they hear word, of, they have a family member. Uh, they don't move across the country uh, because, oh, someone will give me a better place to, st to sleep and a, and a better meal. Sure. Uh, there is some drift within communities. Uh, I mean, yeah, if, if they'll move toward places where they can access services within a community, but they're not going to, you know, all the homeless aren't going to move to L.A. If, if L.A. suddenly starts doing right. uh, a better job of, of housing. Okay. And then the, the final step yeah. was that we had, to, we had to actually put units on the ground. Yeah. And one of those other big myths is that if you do uh, housing for the homeless uh, or affordable housing, low-income housing, that it'll drive property values down. The, the NIMBYs all come out. All the not in my backyard folks. Right. And uh, we have some amazing, high quality SROs, uh, single room occupancy mm -hmm. uh, facilities, and some really amazing um, facilities for indigent and, and homeless individuals that uh, I wouldn't be ashamed to live in. They don't drive down property values, and we spend a lot of time showcasing the places that worked mm -hmm. so what was possible so it's a lot more affordable overall in general to live in Houston and in Texas than in California one of our why do you think that that is one of our secret assets yeah. is that well we're the largest unzoned city in America right uh, and it's a good news, bad news situation. We are a we are low tax, low service state, and we're a little light on environmental regulations. Mm -hmm. I am not bragging about that. <laughs> I, I'm a strong environmentalist, right. uh, but uh, we have in uh, Houston is one of the fastest, easiest uh, uh, permitting processes uh, of any city. So we have uh, our. Land, land cost is lower than a lot of other places, and uh, the ease of getting a facility permitted and on the ground is uh, much better than a lot of places, and mm -hmm. that helps. And without zoning, uh, it's a matter of finding, finding a space that works and getting the permits. It's not about going through a zoning board of adjustment and getting permission to do a multifamily in a certain area or not. It's, it's, yeah pretty quick. It's mostly about finding the money and putting it on the ground. We, our goal was to put uh, 2,500 units of uh, housing for homeless individuals. And, I, and it sounds like a lot, but it's also yeah. not a lot. Right. And every major city in America today has a problem with workforce housing. Right. And, all, and every major city in America today has a problem with affordable housing. So when you add on you know, the, the bottom of the rung, um, homeless individuals, it's, it's hard to find uh, 
the resources to make it happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, though, you know, the more people step over someone homeless on the on the sidewalk and start demanding action, what what gets squeezed is the the workforce housing. You, you know, we don't the people who aren't homeless who who work two and three jobs to get to get by that can't they can't afford to a place mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we subsidize the other right. affordable housing and the uh, housing for the homeless yeah so how do you address that the workforce housing issue it, it, is there a role for the sort of public subsidy for that is there or is there more of a role for um, trying to make it as cheap as, as possible to build or, or, or how do you yes attack yes, that yes 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to make it uh, more affordable to build you have to subsidize housing when possible uh, you you depending on the, the will of the governing body you can require uh, more uh, uh, middle-income Units. If someone's building a high-end, right? Uh, so inclusionary uh, or set-aside you know, for that. Inclusionary or set-aside right. yeah. uh, programs for mm -hmm. someone who's building a high-end mm -hmm. property. Anybody that wants any kind of a, of a, a, a variance or a waiver from from government requirements ought to be able to put something on the table. Uh, HUD at the time we were working was was very much pushing us toward. High opportunity neighborhoods and not concentrating facilities. Sure. And I, you know, I I understand and I appreciate why they wanted to do that. But on the other hand, you could put a you can put a whole lot more on the ground if if the land values are are lower. Yeah. Uh, and the answer is we could build in both places as much money as we have, and we still wouldn't be doing enough. We made great progress. Uh, I left office at the end of 2015. The new mayor cares very much about homelessness as well. He had a, a much more difficult problem today than a year ago because Harvey came yeah. in and wiped out a lot of private sector non-subsidized right? yeah. housing stock that was I mean, we lost a lot of high-end properties, but we lost a, a huge number of, of uh, affordable units, right. and they haven't been replaced. Right. So I venture that if you go out and interview the homeless on the streets of Houston today, you're going to find that uh, a number of them were affected by Harvey. Yeah. I want to go back. You mentioned the no zoning thing. I think that's the thing that in this sort of space, people always, that's the first thing that comes to mind about Houston. So what's a common misconception about that, do you think? When people yeah. know that we don't do zoning, yeah. they think we don't do planning. No, you actually uh, have to do more planning because you don't do zoning. Yeah. But the good part of no zoning is that the market uh, acts and that it helps to keep uh, property values close to, to, to market. You're, there's no There's no artificial constraints. A declining warehouse district can can become cool, trendy loft sure. apartments virtually overnight. Yeah. Or a uh, neighborhood of non-owner occupied, tiny, uh, poorly maintained homes can be redeveloped into a new subdivision really quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, when er the whole rest of the country had the housing collapse, you know, 2008, 2009, we didn't because mm -hmm. our property values were really close to uh, the, the market values. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Now, of course, the criticism after the hurricane, which you also brought up, is, has been about, well, if you don't have zoning, then you're not making sure that, that these, these, these homes are in places that are protected from flooding. And so how, zoning, do you, yeah, how do you respond to that? Not having zoning doesn't mean you don't have planning, and yeah. not having zoning doesn't mean you don't have uh, a permitting process and, right. and health and safety requirements. Uh, I'll say first that uh, Houston is built on the, the coastal prairie and it flooded before there was a, any human beings anywhere in that, that region. Mm -hmm. A defining feature of the city is eight small rivers that run west to east through the city. They're, we call them bios, but they're little slow-moving rivers. And I'll say second that Harvey was a freak storm. There's a community outside of Houston that had 71 inches of rain over mm -hmm. four days. Mm -hmm. There's not any place on earth that's not going to flood. Sure. So places flooded that had never flooded before shouldn't have flooded. Harvey, you know, God help us if that's the new normal. It's the worst recorded rainfall event in U.S. history. So you can't judge based on that. Uh, however, there are overlapping jurisdictions on and and confusion as to who can allow building in uh, close to those waterways and we have had a huge reluctance because we are an extreme property rights state mm -hmm. uh, to say to people you can't build at your own risk uh, I mean I think we certainly can tighten up the rules on uh, flood insurance and, and right. who's allowed to rebuild right. and finally the, the county, which has most of this responsibility, has begun to buy out uh, people. The buyouts are expensive, right. and uh, in Texas it's politically unpalatable to tell people, if, particularly if they're not looking for uh, flood insurance, that, right. that they can't take a chance. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine an eminent domain is not a popular thing. Eminent domain is yeah. not a popular thing. Right. Well, and, and yeah. I mean, eminent domain still yeah. means that you have to pay fair market, fair market value. Right. Right. Uh, we have, there's one area of Houston that uh, had never flooded before, it's the Marland area, but, but flooded three times in three years, which was devastating. And, and that is absolutely due to uh, upstream changes in development patterns. Mm -hmm. Uh, but one of the other problems with Harvey is that there are two major reservoirs to the west of Houston that, that uh, hold back. We're the, we're the funnel that water drains from central Texas to the Gulf. Mm -hmm. so it holds back the, the water over there. And there are people who are, who are building behind the levees who are allowed to, to build behind the levees. They're not in the corporate limits of, of Houston. And it's a, it's a little bit of the situation that says no one's in, there's not one single person in charge, so no one's in charge. Sure. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Sure, I yeah. hope it was helpful. Yeah, no, it was good. Thank you again for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. Liam Dillon is the co-host of the podcast, housing reporter for the LA Times. You can find both of us on Twitter by searching our names. Um, and please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you get the chance, we will be back in two weeks. Thank you again for listening.